You may be seated. Our New Testament lesson today comes from the final section of James, the fifth chapter, starting in verse 13. James writes, If any of you are suffering, they should pray. If any of you are happy, they should sing. If any of you are sick, they should call for the elders of the church, and the elders should pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Prayer that comes from faith will heal the sick, for the Lord will restore them to health. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. For this reason, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what it can achieve. Elijah was a person just like us. When he earnestly prayed that it wouldn't rain, no rain fell for three and a half years. He prayed again, God sent rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any of you wander from the truth and someone turns back the wanderer, recognize that whoever brings a sinner back from the wrong path will save them from death and will bring about the forgiveness of many sins. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, let the words of my mouth and the thoughts and meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It took me a little while, but not very long, to realize when I had moved uh, to the south from the Midwest that what I thought in the Midwest was no culture actually had a culture all of its own. And one of the main elements of Midwestern culture um, that, that doesn't exist, I don't think, anywhere else is what I'll call for today the Midwestern goodbye. Now, this involves at least a 45-minute process when you are leaving someone's house or, or leaving, especially a relative's house. And if it's a relative like a grandparent that you haven't seen for a little bit, and there's nine stages of the Midwestern goodbye that I'll share with you today. First, someone says, well, and, and like W-E-L-P, and this is important for you to know, and, and that, that means that it's about that time. So, well, the second thing then is, is, is there are, there's a round of hugs that must happen uh, in, in the liturgy of the goodbye. And, and then the third thing is that, is that we walk to the door. The walk to the door involves at least a 20-minute conversation moving about 10 feet towards towards the door to getting to the threshold. And then involves the fourth element, the doorway chat. So at the doorway chat, then we stand and we have some more conversation, some laughs. And then at some point, at some point, the folks who need to leave are start the, we should really be going now, is, is element number five in the conversation. And, and uh, that, that continues for a while, followed by number six, the second round of hugs that must happen. Uh, because we, we don't remember that we hugged each other about 50 minutes ago. And so we have to do it again. This time, longer embraces, maybe some back pats, uh, things like that in the process. And then the seventh thing is the hand on the doorknob conversation. So you literally stay in there with your hand on the doorknob, trying maybe to escape at this point, and yet still the conversation continues, and it would be uh, not right or kosher for you to, uh, to open the door by that point. And then... Number eight is a slow open conversation. And, and, and so the door must open slowly, and there is a little bit more hanging on that happens. And then finally, number nine is the great window wave that happens as grandma and others wave out the window, and you must wave to them in return while leaving the house. Uh, 
as a symbol that you actually love and care about the people that you just spent over an hour saying goodbye to. Now, I'm telling you, like, this is codified. I, I found articles about the Midwestern goodbye, and when I've read them to my wife, she's like, that's exactly what it's like when we go to visit people. And, and, and it is something that, you know, I mean, Southerners are friendly and everything. Like, there's nothing like, but, but there's a particularity uh, to a Midwestern goodbye that I just can't explain to you. I think that James in this section is giving a Midwestern goodbye because we hit the end of his, his section, and it's almost like he's in the middle of this fatherly advice, like when you're going to leave your dad for a while, and he starts to say to you, like, always go somewhere with a buddy. Remember that, son. And then, and then in the midst of it, like, don't spend money you don't have. And then he might try to tell you some other things, and if, at some point says, like, and call your mother every week. Like, there's something along that. And James is basically going through those things uh, at the end of our passage today. So we're going to walk through it a little bit together and see what kind of lines of, of continuity we can find. James starts, if any of you are suffering, they should pray. If any of you are happy, they should sing. I think one thing that James is calling for right here in this section that really is a lot about prayer is this, is, is authenticity in our emotions and in our bodies. In other words, he's saying, don't pretend that you are okay when you're not, right? Don't, don't pretend like it's all good when it's not. Don't shove joy away as well. So when things are good, it, like, you know, he says, sing when it's good and, and, and pray when it's not. He's, he's calling for an authenticity and integrity within ourselves. In doing that, James is really arguing for a full integration into the life of the community. A full integration into the life of the community. He'll go on, right, to talk about how the sick person should call for the elders of the church to come and pray for them to come and be with them. You see, we can easily move on from a church community when we are not invested in one another. This is hard. This is hard because to not be isolated from one another, to not be isolated in church community requires that we end up being vulnerable with each other. And vulnerability is by nature hard. And it's by nature not all that fun to enter into sometimes. And it's difficult because you kind of put yourself out there. It means that we have to share our burdens and joys with one another. We have to care genuinely about how the other is doing, and it takes mutuality and reciprocity in those relationships. So it cannot just be that one person is the one who is doing all of the telling about what is wrong in their lives and not and, and, and that the other person is not offering anything else. In the community, we all need to be vulnerable with one another, caring for each other. I think this is part of the dilemma today in the church in America. I think it's part of our dilemma 18 plus months into COVID, right? Is, is that for a lot of us, we, we've, we've lost some of those relationships that we had in church and things like that. And then some of us have realized, and I think in, in different cases realized, like maybe those relationships actually lacked depth, right? So if our, if our depth of conversation with people, our depth of relationship with people in the church involves a five-minute conversation in the narthex, most likely we're not going to miss it all that much. But if it involves a, a, a different layer of depth, now you're not going to be vulnerable with every single person sitting in the room. Like, of course not. But if we don't have those relationships that, that can tie us together, if we don't have that, that genuine reciprocity and mutuality, then of course we can leave. Of course we can go somewhere else. Or of course we can say, it's not that important to me this week. Uh, and, and make that a pattern of life. 
James continues, right? So he says, if any of you are sick, they should call for the elders of the church and the elders should pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. Prayer that comes from faith will heal the sick and the Lord, for the Lord will restore them to health. And if they have sinned, they will be forgiven. For this reason, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I find this passage really, really interesting because in this passage, it is the empowered sick people who are not isolated from the community. By nature, by nature, sick people get isolated, right? Like that's what we do. We, we, we create wards for sick people to not get other people sick. I was talking to Matt Hester, one of our dear members, who's easily the funniest person in this church. And, and Matt, um, Matt, Matt picked up COVID from work a few weeks ago. Matt was talking to me about his experience because uh, he was fully vaccinated, everything like that. And, and he isolated himself in his son's room, literally, and was there. And he said it was like prison. He would go and he would walk the perimeter of the yard every day, do his laps around the yard. He said that Christina would, would knock on the door and leave him his dinner, right? And he would go out and get, get the thing. And he said he did his laundry every single day and wiped everything with Lysol at all times and went through three cans of it. And if you know Matt at all, being isolated for like more than 20 minutes would drive the guy crazy. So like 14 days of it um, just was was a lot on him and by you know thank god no one else in his family got it and he uh, and, and it was the right thing to do in that case but I, I want us to think when we think about the isolation of sick people we think about lepers in the new testament these folks like that's who are always calling out to jesus from the side of the road right they were naturally pushed to the side of the community so they wouldn't get this skin disease to everyone else or we think about even nursing homes today and often how isolated and how isolating those places can be in this passage though it is the sick who are empowered, right? James literally says, hey, sick person, summon the elders of the church and tell them to come and pray over you. They should anoint you with oil, and then if there's any sins to be forgiven, let's forgive them. And it's interesting because what happens in this passage is that it's not confessing sins to God. It actually says confess your sins to each other. It's sins against one another that tend to alienate us in the life of the community. And so what's happening here is that James is saying that within the life of the community, we can't even differentiate saving one, a person's life, praying over them, and saving their soul by confessing sins to one another, by freeing one another. Sickness is a threat to the community. We realize that. But just the same, James is saying, unconfessed sin is a threat as well. Healing, healing involves movement. It involves going from isolation into community. So in this case, healing is a restorative action. It's restorative. It brings us not only from physical isolation back into the life of the community, but also from spiritual isolation back into right relationship with the community. Then James continues to describe what this powerful prayer is, right? He says, the prayer of the righteous person is powerful in what, what it can achieve. Elijah was a person just like us. When he earnestly prayed that it wouldn't rain, no rain fell for three and a half years. He prayed again, God sent rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So I wonder, what does this powerful prayer mean? Like, does prayer always heal? And what do we do when it doesn't? What do we do when it doesn't? 
See, the problem that we get stuck with is this. We read words like this in the Bible, or we read Jesus saying that if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you'll be able to move a mountain, right? And we read those kind of texts, and we say, well, what in the world? I had lots of people praying for this loved one or this situation like that, and nothing like that happened. In fact, we didn't hear from God in any form of way, and actually things went the exact opposite of how we had hoped. And so when we read those texts and pull them out, then we say, and then what happens to a lot of people, right, is that they throw out their faith entirely. They say, God didn't listen to me about this thing. It said that if I, if, if, you know, it said a prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And so that should have happened just like I wanted it to. Well, I want us to think about a few things about prayer this morning as we approach this, because I think it's impossible to read a text like this and to be able to say, well, um, Let's not deal with the realities of prayer when we talk about it. So the first thing is, is prayer is not a magic trick. Prayer is not a magic trick. It, it, it's not just like God's a genie up in the sky who gives us our three wishes, and then we get to call on him like that. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't go ahead and pray for things to be healed or things to be made right. But think about this. If, if prayer was just a matter, if, if we, then we wouldn't need anything like the medical profession or anything like that. We wouldn't need to take care of our own bodies and ourselves. We could just pray like, God, take care of this for me, and it would happen. Second thing is this. Prayer can't suspend someone else's free will, right? So uh, maybe, maybe you have prayers when you're in high school and thinking about, um, thinking about dating someone, and you tried to suspend another's free will uh, through that, right? I know I did. Like, God, she's really cute. She's seeing this other guy. Uh, if you could make her interested in me, that'd be great, right? Um, and you know what happened? Very, very few times did God uh, intervene uh, and, and, and make that happen. But, but if the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective, I mean, come on, God, like, I'm, I'm trying to be good. Like, make this happen for me, right? I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but, but oftentimes our prayers kind of sound like that. The third thing is that prayer, prayer is a recognition not so much of an asking from God, but it's a recognition that God is with us no matter what. Prayer is communion with God. So God is with us in the midst of our pain and suffering. Jesus himself, right, prays out to God, like from the cross, God, why have you forsaken me? He prays right before the cross, like with drops of sweat falling to the ground, like drops of blood, the scripture says, right? Um, take this cup from me. Uh, Jesus is saying, like, and embodying that God is with us in the midst of all of the pain and suffering of life. And Jesus' prayers weren't answered the way he wanted them to be in those moments. Jesus' prayers weren't, right? And so, so the fact is, is that prayer is recognition that God is with us no matter what, in the midst even of pain. The fourth thing is this. Jesus heals because he is holy, not because the person who asks him is, Right? This passage might make us seem like, well, if I get the right person to pray for me, then it'll happen, right? Sometimes we think about the preacher like this, and y'all, you've known me long enough that you would say like, well, shoot, we're in a lot of trouble because he's like not the righteous man that the Bible talks about, right? And, and so, so we're like, well, we can ask him to pray for us, but it's probably not going to be that good, so we should probably go to like someone else too. But, but, but the fact is, is that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective is not saying, is not saying that God answers only some people because they've done the right things, right? That would be all about works righteousness. That would be saying that, that God only listens because someone is done right or is good enough. Friends, that's not how God of grace works. So powerful prayer, I think, looks like a community surrounding a sick person. 
looks like I'm surrounding a sick person, anointing them with oil, providing for their physical needs, caring for them. Powerful prayer looks like the forgiveness of sins, James is saying. It looks like things being made right. My wife shares a story of her first appointment uh, out in Hillsborough, and there was a woman there, and, and, and she was the matriarch of the church, and she got a bad diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. And the church surrounded and started praying desperately that she would be healed. And in the midst of that, she was not. Um, and she passed not long after. But in her final couple weeks of life, her estranged sons uh, in front of her came and had the conversation that led to them being healed. And that's what she was praying for the whole time, right? And, and the fact is, is that God was moving and doing something. It just was not how the community thought that that prayer would be answered. Right? And so not all the time is it exactly how we think it should be or is going to be. Friends, God can heal us through Jesus. God can do miraculous. We have stories of miraculous healings. We have stories where doctors or nurses have come in and said, I don't know what happened, but it's not there anymore, right? Or something like that. that those are true. Like we believe that God has the power to do that that God can do the miraculous. And yet we also believe that God can do the miraculous every day. I would argue that right now we have a miraculous thing that's called getting a shot in our arm, okay? And, and that that shot can enable us to not die from a global pandemic, right? That's the answer to a lot of people's prayer happening. That's the answer to a lot of people's prayer in action. It's not as miraculous as me like hitting you upside the head and you falling out in a, in a worship service, but dang, like it's really powerful that that God can work even through science and through these incredible advances in technology to develop a vaccine so that people's lives would be saved. Verse 19 and 20 continue. My brothers and sisters, if any of you wander from the truth and someone turns back the wanderer, recognize that whoever brings a sinner back from the wrong path will save them from death and will bring about the forgiveness of many sins. These are strange words to end James, right? Like there's no, there's, there's no final benediction. This is it. This is how he closes. And here's what I want us to think about. In, in the message translation, Eugene Peterson uses these words. He says that if you turn back a, a sinner from, or, or help turn someone back who's wandering away, he says you prevent an epidemic of wandering away from God. You prevent an epidemic of wandering away from God. Friends, being part of the church community, being part of the faith family involves mutual correction and mutual accountability. Kind of goes back to that vulnerability I was talking about at the outset. And we don't really do it well in the church today. We kind of have isolated ourselves from having to share life with one another in this way. But friends, we, we need it. Back when I was at Fuquay um, United Methodist, we started life groups with teenagers. We had we had 10 or 11 groups that were meeting of, of students every Wednesday evening. And, and in those life groups, they had a time intentionally of accountability with one another based on Proverbs 27, 17, where it says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. And in those times, students would genuinely share what was going on in their lives. They'd ask for prayer and for ways, in fact, to grow in holiness in their lives. The only people who need to grow in holiness aren't teenagers, my friends. It's all of us. It is all of us. And we need those relationships. In our small groups, in our Sunday school classes, we often share prayer requests. Typically, they're health 
issues, health concerns, or something going on in our family's life together. But rarely, rarely do we describe about our own issues dealing with depression or addiction or anger with God or loneliness. And because we don't enter in to that depth of relationship with one another, we kind of keep it surfacey. Even if surfacey is like pray for someone's cancer, right? We don't get to the depth underneath of what's going on with our own lives. We're not deeply connected to one another. We, we don't have that type of relationship that could actually call one another out, call one another back in to the fold. And to have this kind of vulnerability, it takes courage and it takes humility. But the fact is, is that I feel cared for when I'm in a relationship where I know that if I screwed up, you would still love me, right? That's when we feel that depth of unconditional love. That's what James is talking about here. He's saying that someone wanders away and we, and we, and we stretch further to go after them, almost like Jesus when he talks about going after that one sheep, right, and leaving the 99 to prevent an epidemic of wandering away from God. Friends, who do you need to not give up on today? I wonder, who do you need to not give up on? Every week when we come to the table, right, I say these words, Christ our Lord invites to his table all who love him. All who earnestly repent of their sin and seek to live in peace with one another. Friends, those are powerful words. Powerful words of invitation first from Jesus, right? That he welcomes all, all to his table. Powerful words of change. Repentance means to turn away, right? Who earnestly repent of their sin and who seek to live in peace with one another. Friends, authenticity means that we believe, that we practice, that God loves us as we are. And authenticity means that we choose to love one another as we are. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.